foes that we met online. Um, well, as you know, uh, I am a firm believer in uh, equipping and co-equipping. And uh, I think as not only do, do uh, preachers and uh, like Patrick and other speakers equip us, we, on the other hand, also vice versa equip you, uh, equip speakers up at the top to give them feedback to continue to hone in their craft of uh, preaching the gospel, preaching the word to us. And so uh, part of what uh, I believe that our church uh, should be part of doing is to be in this co-equipping process, to allow uh, speakers like Patrick and others, like Joel and Jake, is it? yes, Joel and Jake, uh, to come and, uh, and speak to us, to share God's word and, you know, and experience different styles. Like, I'm sure you're kind of bored with me already. Like, uh, seriously, how many times have you heard me speak right up here? So, uh, like, you know, some variety would help as well. And so, Patrick, welcome. And uh, let's pray for you before, and uh, you know, I'm going to allow you to introduce yourself uh, briefly afterward, sure. before your message. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brother Patrick. Lord, I believe that uh, as he was preparing this message that you impressed in his heart, that it is from you. And therefore, Lord, uh, may the words that uh, comes out be not his own, but yours. And may we open our hearts and our minds to receive it, to be edified by whatever you say through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's so good to be here today. And uh, yeah, um, I don't know really what to say about uh, introducing myself. Uh, I had been a pastor at various congregations here and there, not doing that right now. Primary reason is uh, I've got two young kids. One is three years old, and the other one is uh, 10 months. And in fact, uh, at the end of this week, I will be spending my full time with them as a stay-at-home dad. So that's uh, that's my ministry right now. Um, which, uh, well, you know, we'll see how well I survive over the next little while. I had uh, I had half a day with the two of them yesterday and I was pulling my hair out by the time my wife got home. So um, that's a good start, right? Uh, yeah, please, like right now. Um, in fact, let's just like skip the sermon and, uh, and do the prayer. Um, funny thing about uh, doing, uh, doing these planning, um, planning sessions with, uh, with Jonathan about these sermons because, and you probably learned by last week, the the uh, sermon series is the book of Acts over the course of four weeks. So the assigned passages that I have is Acts 8 through 12. So we probably shouldn't skip any more time. Um, back in the day, the church basically just read scripture as the entire sermon. So why don't we just do that? Uh, no, we're not going to do that. But we, uh, we will read the, the first part of the, the assigned passage here. So if you have a Bible... Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start at the second half of verse 1. It's funny how they break up these, uh, these verses from time to time. Acts chapter 8, verse 1b, um, and it begins with, On that day. Or you might see a header, uh, The church persecuted and scattered is what shows up in my translation. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, 
Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Verse 9. Now, for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great, sin, uh, great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of the Lord. So last week's sermon, Pastor Jonathan preached from Acts chapters 1 through 7. And one of the main portions of the message focuses on the day of Pentecost, uh, which is traditionally recognized as the birthday of the church. At Pentecost, scripture tells us, God poured out his Holy Spirit on all people. This giving of the Holy Spirit signified a dramatic shift for the people of God. Before the Holy Spirit was given, the people of God were primarily known by three qualities. That's three. Three qualities. Number one, their race. Of course, the Jewish race. These were the chosen people of God, and still today, many cultures, even outside of Jewish religion, believe them to be the chosen people of God. Number two, a physical marking on the body, at least with the males, 
that's the marking of circumcision. That is a physical marking as a sign of the covenant between God and his people. And number three, adherence to a specific set of laws to which the Jews call the Torah, or what we would call the first five books of the Bible. Um, these were the law of Moses. Most of the time, if anyone wanted to be part of the people of God, he or she needed all three of these qualities to be true of them. This condition meant that God's community was very much an exclusive system. If this system applied today, uh, everyone in this room, it seems pretty much everyone in this room would have little to no chance at becoming part of God's people. And even if in the event of any of us were received into a Jewish family, we guys uh, would be expected to undergo probably the most terrifying kind of surgery ever imagined. And finally, if anyone, any of us was able to get past conditions one and two, we would then be required to follow the 613 laws of the Torah, plus the thousands of laws that were derived uh, from the scriptures throughout the centuries since then. Laws that are, to put it bluntly, impossible for any of us to follow perfectly. This exclusive system, however, was busted wide open when God poured his spirit on his people. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In a single moment, when the Holy Spirit comes, the good news of God's people will be opened up and be made into good news for all people. So the book of Acts tells the story of the people of God as the stipulations for being God's people shifted from an exclusive system to an open one. The shift kicked off an incredible movement in the city of Jerusalem. Scripture tells us that when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120 or so believers, the result was not merely that people were suddenly able to understand others speaking foreign languages, but also that as a result of this incident, 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized that day. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. This influx of people, however, was not without its challenges. As the community of Christ followers grew, the group of disciples known as the Twelve, those who were considered the leaders of the community, found it more and more difficult to care directly for everyone in the community, while also maintaining their responsibility for the teaching of Scripture. And the ones who suffered most under this institutional crisis were the Greek-speaking widows. 
a quick word about the class system in, in the old Greco-Roman days was there was a racial conflict that was happening because the Jewish community had been battling for hundreds of years of territorial rule. And the most recent one in memory was this empire, this Greek-speaking empire that wanted to make everyone Greek. And the Jewish population had rebelled against, against this, this empire and actually got back their territory for about a hundred years until they lost it to the Romans. So there was a lot of animosity between the Jews and anyone else who spoke Greek. And yet they still kind of had to keep a bilingual uh, society because that's how you get through. You can't, you can't you know, relate to the Romans unless you spoke their language as well. So there was this racial tension. And then also with regard to a class system of widows, basically if you were a widow, if your husband had died, a widow no longer owned any property unless there was some sort of backstop behind it. But more or less, every widow had lost everything at the moment of her husband's death, and that was a problem. So it, this class system broke into the church or kind of found its way into the church, and the Greek-speaking widows were kind of viewed as the bottom rung of the ladder and were last in line when it came to the distribution of food. So. The community, the church community, they appointed seven men to handle this important work of hospitality. One of these men was Stephen. Scripture describes Stephen as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was a bold preacher. I lost my page. He was a bold preacher. One day, while standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish priestly high council, and the very people who conspired to have Jesus killed, uh, Stephen told the story of God's people from Moses to David to Jesus, highlighting the role the Sanhedrin played in Christ's death. So the priests dragged him out of the city and stoned Stephen to death. This incident sparked a wave of persecution against the followers of Jesus and caused the disciples to flee from Jerusalem, scattering them into the surrounding regions. This effect of persecution serves as the backdrop for the scripture that we just read. Uh, Acts chapter 8 reads, On that day when Stephen was murdered, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 4, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Immediately after Stephen was stoned to death, zealous Jews decided to take it upon themselves to put an end to the community of Jesus' followers. But their persecution yielded the opposite effect to what they had intended. As the disciples of Christ were chased across Judea and Samaria, instead of going into hiding out of fear for their lives, the scattered disciples preached the word wherever they went. This action led to another unexpected effect. 
non-Jewish people started to believe in the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. As we continue to read this passage, we will meet a group of people who may have been considered the ones who were least likely to be accepted as part of the people of God. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, what occurred in this passage would have shocked any God-fearing Jew of the time. Never in the entire history of the nation of Israel had anyone imagined that Samaritans and Jews would belong to the same tribe. Samaritans were considered outcasts by the Israelites, abominations because their Hebrew ancestors intermarried with Gentiles, desecrating the purity of their holy nation. Samaritans likewise had no love lost for their Jewish cousins. Having been outcast, they established a new temple for worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews and Samaritans were as far apart as two peoples could be while claiming devotion to the same God. So when Philip decided to visit Samaria to preach Jesus, it should have been extremely unlikely that he could convince the Samaritans to worship a crucified Jew. And if Philip was Jewish, we don't know if he was or not, it would have been extremely difficult for him to stomach the idea of including Samaritans into what was considered a Jewish faith. To put it simply, the idea of Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus Christ and joining with his disciples, who were made up of mostly Jews, must have been met with a certain amount of suspicion and disgust. Perhaps these feelings are what prompted the apostles to respond in the way that they did. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, the description of this event requires some explanation. 
At this point, the church was extremely young. The disciples of Jesus had the Hebrew Scriptures, the set of books we called the Old Testament, and they had the Twelve Apostles, who had spent the last three years living with and learning from Jesus. That's it. They hadn't yet written the Gospels, or the Epistles, or Revelation. The church had not yet developed a systematic theology, or the Alpha Course, or Soul Care by Rob Reimer. None of that existed. The church's strategy for evangelism did not include any invitations for people to begin a personal relationship with Jesus on the premise that God has a wonderful plan for their lives. And they most certainly did not have baptism classes or anything of the sort. What did happen, however, was that God moved in visible, powerful ways in giving confirmation to believers that they had been saved. According to the writer of Acts and to the early church, these visible and powerful ways involved the giving of the Holy Spirit. The church, during its first meeting at Pentecost, witnessed the giving of the Holy Spirit in an incredible, mind-blowing display of supernatural power. And God poured out His Spirit granting the disciples the ability to understand foreign languages. They felt the Spirit moving like a rushing wind and felt Him rest upon them with what seemed like tongues of fire. I have no idea what a tongue of fire is, but I know that it was breathtaking. So when Peter and John went to Samaria to check out what had happened in Samaria, it is possible that they were hoping to receive the same confirmation of God's presence as they did at Pentecost. So when Peter and John laid hands and prayed for the Samaritans, they were able to see that the Samaritans did indeed receive the Holy Spirit. But, but here's the thing. I don't think the Holy Spirit was manifest for the benefit of the Samaritans. The writer of Acts describes how the Samaritans had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. But it was the Holy Spirit who opened the eyes of the Samaritans to the truth about Jesus Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, the Samaritans would not, yet, would not have believed. Yet, the writer of Acts describes it this way because although the supernatural work within the hearts of the Samaritans was underway, the external display of power was yet unseen. The thing that the apostles needed to see. Both Peter and John had spent their lives following the law of Moses, and both of them could understandably have felt a little queasy over the idea of Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So when Peter and John were sent to investigate the Samaria situation, what do you think it would have taken for them to be convinced that Samaritans, that the Samaritans' conversion was real? Of course, the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Samaritans in the same way 
as the 120 disciples had experienced at Pentecost, would have been convincing enough. For both Peter and John, and for the remaining apostles in Jerusalem, that was all they needed to learn that the community of God was finally open to non-Jews, even Samaritans. With this event, it became clear that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could now be the God of anyone, regardless of one's nationality. However, this did not mean that everyone would receive him. The passage in, uh, continues in verse 18. When Simon, the one who practiced sorcery, saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. To which Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. With the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's gift was finally made available to those who were once considered to be outside of his promise. However, this gift cannot be bought or sold. Simon the sorcerer, a man who had benefited from being able to impress crowds, convincing them to worship him, thought that the Holy Spirit could be bought. He thought the Holy Spirit could be manipulated to do his will, instead of understanding that it was up to him to submit to the Spirit's will. Learning about Simon the Sorcerer should prompt us to pause and think hard about what we believe about the Holy Spirit. Do we view the Holy Spirit to be an impersonal flow of energy to be used as we please? Is the Spirit something akin to the Force in Star Wars, granting Jedi Knights the ability to levitate objects and to control minds? Or is the Holy Spirit God himself, the one who hovered over all creation since the very beginning? the one who inspired the words of scripture, and the one who enables all of God's people to boldly do his will? How we answer these questions can indicate how we view our relationships with God. Whether we believe that God exists for us, or whether we were created by God to, for the purpose of glorifying him. Simon had witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit, and his mind jumped straight toward how he could benefit from having the same abilities as Peter and John. Peter was right to rebuke Simon because he had wrongfully assumed that the Holy Spirit could be used to do his bidding. Jesus said, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes, uh, where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. If we were to read this text in its original Greek, we would have seen the play on words Jesus makes in his statement. In the Greek text, both the English words wind and spirit are translated from the same word pneuma, which can also be rendered as breath. 
When Jesus says that the wind goes where it pleases, and so it is with everyone born of the Spirit, he makes the point that when God breathes, over, breathes his life over creation, it cannot be controlled by its creatures, but only by its creator. We have no power over this breath in anything that it does. Not with regard to whom the Spirit gives his power, not in how he might manifest his power, and certainly not the conditions under which someone might respond to this power. You might ask, if we have no control over the Holy Spirit's power, then what's the point of praying to him for miracles or the like? Romans 8, 26 and 27 offers an answer. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When we pray, it is not us who initiates the prayer, but it's the Holy Spirit who lives in us and who compels us to participate in God's will through prayer. When you and I are stirred to pray to God on behalf of ourselves or another, God himself is the one who invited you into the work that he has already begun. And what work might this be? It's the work of carrying out God's promise to his people. If we were to turn back into the early pages of the Old Testament, we would discover that God's original promise to his people actually included a blessing for those who were not of Jewish descent. Before the nation of Israel even existed, God made a promise to their forefather Abraham. This is what God said to him. Genesis 12, 1-3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It has always been, been God's will to bless all peoples on earth. First, through one man, Abraham, who would eventually bear a child, who would then grow into a whole nation. And out of that nation, one man would live a holy and righteous life. He would carry out the genetic prerequisites for the people of God. He would bear the physical markings of one in covenant with God. And he would be the only person to ever live flawlessly according to the law that was given by God. And yet, this man who bore the wrath that was deserved by everyone else in history, on a Roman cross, Jesus Christ sacrificed his life so that everyone, not just the descendants of Abraham, but also the Gentiles and even the Samaritans, would have a chance at receiving God's gift of salvation. 
And to those who received the gift of salvation, they were also given the Holy Spirit, a deposit assuring us of the gift we have received. Just as God breathed into the lungs of Abraham when he created the world, he breathed upon us, causing his own life to flow in and through us. What are we to do with this gift? When offered by Simon the sorcerer to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit, Peter told him, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. A gift cannot be bought because otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. Instead, gifts are meant to be given. Years later, after this incident, Peter wrote the following passage in a letter to the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The language used by Peter echoes the language used by the Israelites to describe their special relationship with Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, people who were once considered to be out of the reach of God's promise are brought in. Samaritans, Gentiles, lepers, and the poor, sinners, and tax collectors, princes, and prostitutes. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. This renewal of God's promise is why the following chapters in Acts contain stories of how an Ethiopian eunuch and a Roman centurion both came to faith. It's also why shortly after we are told about the conversion of Saul, the zealous Jewish nationalist who was hell-bent on cleansing the world of Christ followers, who turned into Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And through Paul, God carried out his plan to make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now the lineage of God's people spans well beyond the Jewish nation, but into every nation. In filling his disciples with boldness, God has filled his house with disciples from every tongue and tribe. You are also included in this lineage. This holy nation to which you belong has been given the ministry of reconciliation between God and his creation. Though you may live in conflict with a world who does not recognize God, his authority, or his salvation. And although, according to God's law, they might be considered to be outside the reach of God's promises. Remember... You were once considered to be outsiders. Once you were undeserving of God's grace. 
but you have been brought in. And the only one who ever lived a life to serving enough to stand in the presence of God was also the one who gave his own life so that you could stand in God's presence. So if Jesus could give his life for you, who in the world can't he save? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your promise always included us. And though at times throughout history we might lose sight of the expansive nature of your promise of salvation, we recognize today that you are not an exclusive God. You are the God of the cosmos, of heaven and earth, of everything ever created. We pray that you would remind us continually that you are able to reach anyone and everyone, and that our job is to proclaim that good news. Show us who to speak to, who to offer grace to, who to display your loving nature to. 